You're listening to The 66. I'm Andrew Kingsley. With me is Drew Kaiser. Look out for the dogs. Yeah, that's going to be in our verse for today. Uh, it's in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. But we're and starting. one more thing. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Yeah. Sounds really good. Really encouraging. Just a little, you know, to whet your appetite. Yeah. Some dogs fun. and flesh mutilators. Yeah. That's the theme of today's subject. Yeah, if you don't take anything else, take that from it. Uh, but we are, we're going to start chapter 3 <laughs> of Philippians, and we just wrapped up chapter 2, and we're getting here, and we're starting off, and Paul's going to say, finally, uh, but then he's going to go on for two more chapters, so maybe like a preacher that would uh, say, in conclusion... There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and then keep preaching for 20 minutes after he's starts wrapping it up. Well, obviously, Andrew, what we're looking at here is uh, a letter within a letter. Yeah. Right? I mean, obviously, I'm being sarcastic. You're... <laughs> well, you know, I, this is this is obviously a unity problem in the epistle of, of the Philippians, and uh, this is uh, something that was written to the Laodiceans that a later redactor put into Philippians. Yeah, a lot, right. lots of people have that opinion, but yeah, that's what people do with little words like "finally." That's exactly right, and this is more of the word "finally" here doesn't it doesn't have any problems. Uh, it's just it's an idea of he's transitioning over to something new. That's yeah, the we do that all the time. Using. Yeah, in th- this is a letter, and that's just the way people talk. Yeah, and either way, he doesn't have that much to say afterwards, anyway. I mean, it's a really short what? letter. It's a well. I mean, some of the heaviest stuff is coming. Yeah, but as far as like uh, just sheer girth, you know, it's going to be. <laughs> well, it's yeah. going to be. You know, it might take. It's you, almost over. It might take you five minutes to read the rest of it. Five to That's ten. That's a good minutes. point. Yeah. So he is wrapping it up. Uh, so it's not a. It's not a big problem. It's a more than halfway through. Yeah. Right? Even though we're. On the third of four chapters, it's in terms of word count, we're probably over halfway through. Yeah, that's my point. Yeah. In terms of word count, we are almost over. Now, we do have a lot of really heavy stuff coming up, but in terms of just sheer word count, how long do you have to sit and listen to this? You're almost done. You're wrapping it up. Um, but we want to look at, he says here, finally rejoice in the Lord. And that's our topic for this episode, is rejoice in the Lord or having joy in Christ. And we've been following this theme of joy throughout the whole book. And here our theme for today is rejoicing in Christ. And we're going to look at verses 1 all the way down to verse 16 uh, under this same heading. And I've got Paul really talking about having joy in Christ in uh, three different ways, or he discusses the role of of three different things in our Christian joy. Those three things are the flesh, the faith, and the future. And you can see in uh, verses 1 through 9 that Paul's going to talk about the flesh. And uh, to give you an idea of what we're talking about, in verse 2, what we had, uh, what we just read a moment ago, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence 
in the flesh. And he's going to go through, and he says that a couple times, that phrase, having confidence in the flesh. He's saying, we don't have any confidence in the flesh. And this is a reference back to the old law. Certainly, this is something that was plaguing the early church at this time, was this idea of Christians have to keep the Old Testament law. And you can flip over to Acts 15 and see where all of that begins to take place in the early church. There are some Pharisees that are teaching people that all the all these new converts, the Gentiles, they're going to be Christians, they have to keep the law of Moses. So in modern day terms, we're talking about Messianic Jews. You know, people that would say, yeah, Christ was the Son of God, he died for us, but we still have to keep the Old Testament law. Christ was a Jew. If we're supposed to be living like Christ, we have to be Jews and live according to the law. And what happens is, if you're looking in Acts 15, uh, they end up, all the apostles and some elders end up meeting together in Jerusalem and they have this meeting about it. And they try and figure out what they're going to do. And at the end of that meeting, you can see that what they decide is they're not going to make the Gentiles do anything, but I believe abstain from what has been strangled and sexual um, and blood. immorality and blood. Uh, it's and in eating things. Yeah, it's in verse 19 and 20. Uh, it says this. Well, this is Peter's proposal to them that they end up accepting. But this is what, James, right? This is James's proposal. Maybe it is James. Well, am I off? We're in Acts 15. Yes, that's right. James replies. Yeah, Peter goes first, and then James replies back yeah. to. So yeah, that's right. James says, "My judgment." This is in verse 19, Acts 15. My judgment is that we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. So that's what they tell them to do. And then they send Paul and Barnabas out uh, with a letter. And you can see uh, in verse 28 and 29 that they send them out with a letter that says that exact same thing. This is what you guys mm-hmm. got to keep from doing. So that was the teaching of the early church at the time. You don't, you've been set free from the law. You don't have to follow the letter of the law anymore. But this is what you got to do. And it wasn't, I know circumcision is the, the word here, and we get fixated on that, but circumcision was kind of a catch-all for all of the Jewish traditions. Mm-hmm. And I know people are probably thinking right now, why that one? Why not Passover or you know, why didn't they choose, you know, temple worship or... But, you know, circumcision, when you read circumcision, it wasn't just about circumcising baby boys right after they're born, but it's about keeping special feast days, holidays, traditions of the oh, yeah. Jews that the Gentiles didn't even know about or practice in their heritages. So, um, you know, it's there's a figure of speech where one part stands for the all, and that's that's what this is mm-hmm. when he uses this word circumcise. And, of course, he makes a play on words, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Yeah. I mean, he's he's not he's not against you using circumcision as a sanitary option or something that you yeah. want to do, but he is using some strong language here to express his frustration with people who bind non-binding laws on on new Christians who are just trying to get this whole 
new faith in their system, and and they're getting confused early on, and it's mm-hmm. frustrating his attempts to save men. Yeah, you know? yeah, and that's really the whole the whole message behind Paul's letter to the Galatians. The whole thing is about people who would have the Gentiles forced to be circumcised uh, to live according to the law of Moses. And then Paul kind of, he just goes off on the whole letter saying that's not how you've learned in Christ. And he says, you who would uh, force people to be circumcised, he says, you are severed from Christ. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, obviously the the play on words there, the same kind of play yeah. on words that we see here. Um, and that word for mutilating the flesh actually comes from the same word that circumcision comes from. Uh, circumcision is a Greek word that's got the preposition um, around in front of the word cut. And then this word that he uses for those who mutilate the flesh, it's the word cut with the preposition down on the front of it. So it's kind of the same, it's the same word, but just with a different preposition on the front of it. Uh, and it's, it's worse. Even more so a play on words in Greek than it is in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, that word for mutilate is the same word that you see in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, um, that episode in Second uh, Kings eighteen on Mount Carmel, or is it First Kings? It's Second Kings, isn't it? Uh, first. Okay, it's First, first Kings. Okay, First Kings eighteen. It's that same word that those prophets of Baal they're cutting themselves. Uh-huh. It's the same word. They're mutilating themselves in some pagan practice. So it's even more of a play because he's kind of comparing these people to pagans. Which uh-huh. to them it would have been horrible to uh, be associated with paganism, and he calls them dogs. Mm-hmm. And dogs is another Gentile play. slur. Yeah, it's a play on these guys for looking down on Gentiles, calling them dogs. You got to live like this. Well, now he's turning it back and saying these guys are the dogs. These guys, the ones that mutilate the flesh. So it's Paul's language there is really interesting, um, and he's doing it to make this point that. There is no confidence in the flesh, which means you cannot be saved by the law. You are saved by Christ. Um, And you can read through, starting in verse 4, Paul says, um, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul is saying, if somebody thinks that they can be saved by the law, then it's me. Nobody is more qualified to be saved by the law than I am. And he goes through and he lists his qualifications for that, and we know Paul's history, so we know that what he's saying is exactly right. If anybody can be saved according to the old law, if anybody has a reason to boast in what they've done, it's Paul. But then when you get down to verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then he goes into this second thing that I think we're looking at here, and that's the faith. So we've talked about the flesh, now we're into the faith. And he's going to start by saying, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. And again, when we're talking about the law, we're talking about the flesh, all that's the same but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
And so now he's he's showing that that we have this in faith. It's not a salvation that comes from the flesh. And these are people, or I guess the reason Paul's bringing this up is because this has been, this is going around the church at this time, and it's possible that it's hit Philippi before. Either way, Paul's warned him about this before. Look in verse 1 of chapter 3. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. So this is yeah. a big problem. And it doesn't mean that he had written them a previous letter. It could mean he wrote them a previous letter. Yeah. But it could mean the same things that I said to you, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, to write to write the same things that I preached to you when I was with you. Uh, there's another place in another epistle where he says, you know, this is what I told you about when I was with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe that's Peter in one of his epistles. I'm going to bring to your remembrance what, what I've already said to you. Um, this is a reminder is what we're what we're looking at here. Yeah, so he's reminding them your salvation is not in the law, it's in faith in Christ. And then with that in mind, we get down to verse 12 and uh, we have Paul talking about the future, about what's coming up. Well, really, I guess technically he starts back in verse 10 because he's talking about uh, the resurrection, having the resurrection from the dead. Look in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. So we're looking towards the future. And then he says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying our salvation is not from the flesh. Our salvation is in faith, and we are looking toward the resurrection. Not that I've already experienced that resurrection or have been made complete in that regard, but there's one thing I do. I forget what's behind me, and that's what I'm pushing toward. And so that's really, in a nutshell, the reading that we have for this week. Now we're in the second part of our podcast, and what what we always do, Andrew, is we like to, to put our thinking caps on. So, uh, do you have your thinking cap on? It's not very large, but yes, it's on. <laughs> it's uh, your head is oversized <laughs> for your thinking cap. Uh, I have a pin head. We have mm. we have the opposite problems. Oh yeah, sure. I have a very small head with very little <laughs> hair. You have a lot of hair. You know, you have a generous cranium. It's okay. not, yeah. you know... You got a big forehead. Maybe that yeah, but you got a lot of hair covering it, okay. so it's, it's all right. For now, who yeah, knows what's going to happen. Um, but that is, you know, really we should rewind and start over, but we're just going to keep going. Uh, we have our thinking caps on, and one of the... We just like to dig into some things that don't come up naturally in the reading or in just trying to understand the passage... But this is the part that a lot of our listeners has told us is our is their favorite part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that I think it's the first time we've come across it in our studies, because we haven't done one of the Gospels yet, 
and we haven't really explored Acts, so this is the first time it's come up, is the idea of the Pharisees. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, he mentions that he's of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and, you know, uh, they talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel, so really, you're going to be Levi, Benjamin, or Judah by this point, if you're born in Paul's day. So that doesn't surprise us that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he says that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, which just means he's a super Hebrew, super Jew. Yep. And uh, as to the law, a Pharisee. So what in the world does that mean? You know, I think a, a lot of people are familiar with the Pharisees as kind of the bad guys, the antagonists in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospel accounts, but mm-hmm. there's a lot more to them than that. And, there, you know, I guess there are some good things that you could say about them. Uh, they were the most religious people on the planet, you know, to start with. Yeah. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. This goes back to the period of time known as the intertestamental period of Jewish history. That is the time between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. You know, circumstances are so different between those two books. In Malachi's day, you know, the people are kind of ap- apathetic, and they're bringing uh, sacrifices that have uh, blemishes to the Lord, and they're not giving the way that they should give. And then the inspired record disappears. Fast forward 400 years, we're in Jesus' day, and people are the opposite of that. It's all about you're giving, not only are you giving 10%, which they weren't doing in the book of Malachi, but you're giving 10% of your garden herbs, and, and you're splitting hairs, and you're binding heavy loads on people's shoulders too, too hard for them to bear. So what happened? Well, what happens, what happens in religion a lot of times, people start having disagreements about how the law is to be fulfilled. And there were some major sects of the Jews. Two in particular, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And then you had some other offshoots like the Essenes, which were um, kind of mystic and off to themselves. And uh, we don't know as much about them. And In fact, we discovered a lot about them in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the main ones, and these are the ones you read about in the Gospel accounts and in the Book of Acts, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, The Sadducees were wealthier, they were in the minority, they were more political, they were in the majority on the Sanhedrin, and they held strictly only to the Torah, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pharisees were in the majority, uh, and they were... uh, they they held, of course, to the, the Law of the Prophets and the Writings. In other words, the 39 books of the Old Testament as Christians see them. Uh, also, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. So, you know, the old trick on that is, so they were sad, you see. But the Pharisees mm-hmm. believed in angels, demons, the resurrection of the dead, and all these things that the, Pharise- the Sadducees claimed were not in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, There is a scene in Acts chapter 23 where Paul uses these differences uh, between the Pharisees and Sadducees to his advantage. Being a Pharisee himself, or a former Pharisee, he knew this would work. 
And he was, uh, you know, it's kind of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were together against Paul in this uh, in this setting here in Acts 23 until Paul says, uh, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And then when he said that, this debate rages in the mob that kind of separates these two sects, and they start warring against each other, and Paul is manages to escape because he's yeah. playing the differences against one another. Now, um, another interesting point about Paul's former life as a Pharisee is he was trained at the feet of a famous rabbi named Gamaliel. Uh, that is according to Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Now, you know, uh, Paul was Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was in the province of Cilicia, which was on the uh, what eastern side of Asia Minor, pretty good ways away from Jerusalem. But whenever he got 12 or 13 years old, he would have traveled down. He would have been sent to school in Jerusalem to sit at the feet of this rabbi, Gamaliel. Yeah. Uh, Gamaliel was the grandson of a, an even more famous rabbi, Hillel. Mm-hmm. And Hillel uh, kind of developed a lot of Jewish philosophy in that intertestamental period. And he even you know, around the time of, you know, right before Jesus. And there was another very famous rabbi who kind of contested with him named Shammai. Mm -hmm. And so by Jesus' day, you were of the school of Hillel or you were of the school of Shammai. And this is where uh, the academia of the Jewish religion was. Uh, Gamaliel was Hillel's grandson. Uh, Between Shammai and Hillel, Hillel was the more lenient of the two. If you want an example of the kind of things debated between these two schools of thought, so you can go to the debate over divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19. Uh, some of the ones who were saying that you could divorce for any reason, it is supposed may have been disciples of Hillel. Uh, Hillel might have had more lax views on divorce and remarriage than Shammai. I think I've got that right. Not, you know, yeah. I may have that wrong. Um, so more about Gamaliel. Um, Gamaliel was located in Jerusalem, and he taught you know young boys and young men like Saul of Tarsus. Uh, there's actually uh, in Acts chapter five a case in which Gamaliel did the Christians a favor because Peter and the rest of the apostles were on trial before the Sanhedrin, and they were they were about to be punished very harshly. And Gamaliel stepped in, and he, and he made this argument. It's a very interesting argument. He said, if Jesus is a false prophet, then the Christian religion is going to self-destruct, like many other false Christs have gone before. You know, Jesus wasn't the first to come up and claim to be the Messiah. And Gamaliel saying, we've seen this before. If he's a false Christ, this movement will self-destruct. However... If he is the Messiah, then there's nothing we're doing here today that could stop it. Yeah. So let him go. And it kind of showed that he had a he was he was more lenient than than others that you know may have been on the Sanhedrin or whatever. Um, so he was very influential and still influential to this day. Mm-hmm. The traditions of the Jews are contained in a collection of Jew- Jewish commentary called the Talmud. Talmud, mm-hmm. T-A-L-M-U-D. 
uh, written during that intertestamental time period. Well, no, no, written later than that. Um, kind of compiled from A.D. 200 to 600, something like that. Yeah. Um, and Gamaliel's sayings are in there. In fact, there's a line in the Talmud. Talmud. I have trouble with that. Talmud. Talmud. Yeah. And there's a line in there that says, Since the Rabbi Gamaliel died, the glory of the law has ceased. That that means he was a pretty special guy to them. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm surprised Paul didn't throw his name out in this list. Uh, he just says I was a Pharisee, but his Pharisaical training came through Gamaliel, who was the most famous rabbi of Paul's youth, yeah. and um, and would have been very impressive to a lot of people. And of course, as he goes down to show his credentials as a Jew. He names that he was a persecutor of the church, mm-hmm. and that gives you a lot of backstory on him. That kind of helps us understand his thoughts in verses thirteen and fourteen, yeah. where he's talking about forgetting what lies behind. Mm-hmm. He's trying to forget, you know, that, and he does forget it. He leaves it behind. Yeah, um, but it's always a part of him. Uh, so, you know, I, I just wanted to say some things about his pedigree yeah. there because. Some interesting details that are brought up there and in other places where he talks about his life before Christianity. Oh, yeah. And, Paul, the thing that really I think is impressive about this whole thing, you know, Paul is one of the most qualified people, or he was one of the most qualified Jews at the time. You know, the guy is, he's got his credentials listed right here, and then those other ones that aren't listed here that you just mentioned. Paul is very impressive uh, as a as a Jew. He's an impressive guy. Probably going places, you know. Probably going to be probably if he would have kept on the track that he was going on, he would have been one of these guys that it would have been said about him later. Well, when he died, you know, that mm-hmm. things were different. I feel like yeah. that would have been Paul. Um, and it something that he says later in verse eight. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is a guy that really suffered the loss of everything. His entire life was wrapped up in Judaism. You know, everything about his life was caught up in his status as a Jew and being a Pharisee. Like that, that's. That's who he is to the most. His career. Yeah. And it's, you know. His identity. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's his whole identity. Who he is down to the most basic level is that. That's what he's wrapped up in. And then when when Christ appears to him, everything changes. He really did give up everything. His family would have been still in Judaism all of his friends would have been, you know, I'm sure Pharisees they would have been coming into contact with every day. Um, he gave up everything he had been raised to, uh, you know, it's not any more than any other Jew that became a Christian, but, yeah, a little more so, I guess, because he was more qualified than most. The guy's blameless, according to the old law, just like Job would have been. Paul was blameless, according to the law. And but, you he, know, he really believed that stuff. Yeah. I see a huge contrast even between 
we we usually think of bad Paul and good Paul. And yeah, he was probably responsible for death, so he was he was a bad person. But he wrote to Timothy, you know, about those days when he called himself the chief of all sinners, and he said, "I did it ignorantly and in unbelief." Yeah. He he did what he thought was right, mm-hmm. and there's a big difference between that and a lot of the mixed up people that are in the world today who are not doing things because they think it's right, but they're doing it because they think it's cool, or they yeah. want to fit in, or they just you know don't care, or they're just in it for pleasure. You know, mm-hmm. none of this really made Paul. You know, it, it wasn't like impulse control that he was dealing with. Yeah, he wasn't talking about his gambling addiction or. You know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, he was, he was following his faith the whole time. He was just programmed wrong. Yeah, he had his faith in the wrong thing. But well, I mean, it was it was still in God. It was still right. in the same God. Paul, I don't think throughout Paul's entire life, I don't think there was ever a time that he was not trying to please God. Or well, from the just from the data we have, you know, mm-hmm. from his life as a Jew, he. Now, I'm not saying you know I don't. I don't know if it, when he was a teenager he had a rebellious spell or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it looks like, from what we can see, in his life in Judaism, he's trying to please God first and foremost. He's trying to be the most righteous that he can possibly be in God's eyes. That's what he's trying to do as a Jew. And what that demands is when somebody comes up and says, I am God, then you've got that person's got to be put to death. Because he's blaspheming against the name of God. And yeah. that's what he thought Jesus was doing. Mm-hmm. And he acted on that. Now, was that wrong? Yeah. But you can see where Paul, being a Jew, hearing someone say that, if Paul doesn't buy into it, then you can understand his reaction to the Christian movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, because in his mind, it's the same God that we love and we serve today. In his mind, there's somebody that comes and says that they are God. For us, it would be somebody coming today and saying they are Christ. If somebody came today and said they were the Christ, mm-hmm. we would all be really upset about it and be very angry. Mm-hmm. That Paul was the and same if, if our law and civil law and religious law in that land, like in Middle East today, ran mm-hmm. together. Yeah. So he had papers from his civil government to persecute these people. Yeah. So his law said, you take these people, and you take them out, and you put them in prison, you stone them to death. So he, he, he wasn't like, you know, a, a vigilante. Yeah. He was a, an agent of the Sanhedrin. Yeah. Uh, trying, to, trying to do what he thought was right from God himself. Mm-hmm. And then when Christ appeared to him, obviously, Paul recognized everything that he had to say was true. And everything that Christ said was true. Everything his followers were saying was true. These Christians were the ones who were really following God. And so that would have totally... Just trying to think about it from Paul's perspective, that's just got to... Uh, I mean, that had to have just blown his mind and yeah, everything you know that he had been doing. When you, when you read him talking about his past, he never blames other people... Yeah. For having done the terrible things that he did. But 
other people were responsible for some of that. Mm-hmm. His parents brought him up in a terrorist environment. Yeah. He was he was he was trained to be a terrorist. Mm-hmm. His his education before he was, you know, a man, he was taught to do these things. Yeah, and and you just have that one line: "I acted ignorantly in unbelief." Mm-hmm. But what would I mean? Really, what would we do to try to deal with that stuff? We would say, you know, I did, you know, what I was told to do. I did yeah. what you know. You know, I was raised in a a toxic environment, and I did what you know this church did, and this church abused me. But the people who turned him into that monster in Romans nine and Romans ten, he's praying for their salvation. Yeah, and he is not, you know, bitter towards them. He knows that they were they were, they're in the same trap he was in. Yeah. So it's it's refreshing to see you know not victimize himself. I guess, you oh, yeah. know, just have we're doing a lot of application here. Uh, now I want to move on to something else before we run out of time. That's verse nine. You know there is a big debate over what Paul means by works yeah. in his letters, more so in Romans and Galatians than in Philippians. But this part of Philippians as you've pointed out, sounds a lot like Galatians and Romans um, mm-hmm. and some of the things that he has written earlier. Uh, you know, Martin Luther, for example, you know, fought the merit-based salvation of the Catholic Church by preaching salvation by faith alone. Mm-hmm. And he came into conflict with James, particularly James chapter 2, James says, faith without works is dead. And he even goes down to talk about Abraham and Rahab, how they were justified by their works. And so instead of trying to reconcile Paul and James and find out how those two ideas fit, looking for the different emphases in those letters that they wrote, Luther called James an inspired letter of the New Testament. He called it an epistle of straw. What did he mean by that? Did he mean we're not supposed to read it or it's secondary? There's been a lot of debate over what he meant by that. And he's written a lot of stuff, so mm-hmm. I mean he may have said other things about James. But he he wasn't wasn't I don't even think he translated James into German. I'm not even sure it, I you, somebody needs to check me on that. Mm-hmm. Um so is Paul, when he talks about, you know, let's use Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for example. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Mm-hmm. Not a result. You are saved by grace, not a result of works. So people read that and they say, well, there is nothing whatsoever that you must do in order to be saved, because mm-hmm. if, if you did, that would be salvation by works, and that's what Paul is talking about. Well, I think that it's a lot clearer when you look at uh, Philippians 3.9, and he talks about the same concept not using the term works. Let's read it again. He wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, 
that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he's Mm -hmm. contrasting salvation by faith with a different kind of salvation, but this time he doesn't say salvation through works. He says a salvation that comes from a righteousness of my own from the law. Now, what law is he talking about here? He's not talking about Christian law. He's talking about the circumcision law, mm-hmm. the law of Moses, keeping it perfectly, and being right by keeping that law perfectly. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. But people try to, you know, baptism is one of the big issues. And people mm-hmm. say, well, you don't need to be baptized for salvation. Baptism comes after salvation because. If baptism was essential for salvation, that would be saying you're saved by works. Baptism is a work. That is totally foreign to the idea that Paul is putting out here. Mm-hmm. He's talking about trying to say you are worthy of heaven because you've been keeping the law of Moses perfectly. Yeah. And there are places in Galatians where he uses the term works um, and you know defines that like... Uh, Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So I think that's plain enough, but I believe that uh, Philippians 3.9 is even plainer, mm-hmm. because you don't have the confusion of the meaning of works. I'm, you know, People have had that drummed in their heads so much that they just make works stand for anything that you do. Yeah. But then if you nail them to, to it, you know, and you ask them, well, could a guy say, I believe in Jesus and, and be a serial killer? Would he be a Christian? They would say, no. Well, why not? Well, he's a serial killer. Well, he had to mm-hmm. do something. He had to stop being a serial killer, right? Mm-hmm. Which we call repentance. Yeah. Well, why is that different from saying that a person has to follow Mark sixteen sixteen or Acts yeah. 2, 38 or First Peter three twenty one or... Acts twenty two sixteen or Romans six three and four Galatians three twenty seven or yeah. many other passages that teach that baptism is necessary for salvation mm-hmm. and you don't want to make it just about baptism it is but I don't think people debate about the repentance they, yeah. they debate about baptism for yeah, some reason that get, has become the controversy yeah people just get so hung up on exactly what you're talking about of the well, baptism is a work, so you don't have to be baptized. You can be saved without baptism. you got to say the sinner's prayer. Well, what's the sinner's prayer? Yeah. How is that different from baptism? You know, well, you don't have to pray the exact same thing. You've just got to ask God into your heart. Well, isn't that an, that's a work just as much as baptism Look, is? that takes a lot more effort than having somebody take your body and dip you into water. Yeah, you're not doing anything but just standing there mm-hmm. and receiving. You really receive baptism. Nobody baptizes himself. It's always I was baptized. It's a passive yeah. uh, condition for salvation. The sinner's prayer is takes a lot more personal effort, and you know some of this kind of dovetails with what we talked about two episodes ago with work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah. You got a responsibility. God's got a responsibility. Mm-hmm. That's not salvation by works of the law. No, that's not that's saving just, yourself. It's that's, a covenant. 
You know, yeah. the New Testament, That's it's a, it's a new covenant. That's the word. Old covenant, new covenant. And so we've yeah. got, under the old covenant, you were righteous and therefore uh, dodging the judgment of God. Well, not dodging it, but you know what I mean. Blameless if you fulfilled the law. And that was the deal. That was the co- covenant. just another word for deal. Deal is you do this, God does this. Now there's a new one. And the new one is not like the old one. It's better than the old one because it's not just about what you do anymore. Now what you do is still very important because what you do says a lot about what you believe. And, you know, if you're actually following God, there are things that he's asking us to do now that we still have, there's still things we have to do. But the difference now is, if the difference now I think is most clearly seen in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want a clear cut difference between the old law and the new law, it's right there in the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is looking at what's behind the law and not just the law. Because you can have a person that completes every bit of the law but does not care one bit for God. And you could have that. And they could be, and a lot of the Pharisees were like that. That's what they were like. Uh, that's why Jesus said, in vain do they worship me. You know, they're, they're worshiping, but it's not because they love God. It's because they love themselves and they wanted the reward of heaven. They just, that was all they were worried about. There was no love for God. Uh, they did everything right. The Pharisees did everything right according to the law. They were blameless according to the law, like Paul would have been blameless according to the law. What they did not have was a love for God. And so now, when the new law comes in, Jesus is telling the folks on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it's not about don't murder people. Uh, It's about who's angry. It's not about committing adultery. It's about lusting after somebody else. Uh, And he goes through and he just kind of says, keeping the law is not good enough. It's not good enough. We, there's, we got to have something better to where what's what's going on inwardly matches what's going on outwardly. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we get caught up in what about the works of the law now and are we making baptism a work to get us salvation? No, because our salvation we know is a free gift of grace. We didn't do anything to earn it. But, I mean, but it's there. There's a gift there waiting for us. And You have to get the gift somehow. Mm -hmm. And so that's like me saying, well, if I bought you a present and brought it in here on your desk, you have to open that present. And you would, I'm pretty sure, you would not be like, well, I got myself this present because I opened it. You know, you opened it, but I bought it. You know, I bought it and I brought it in here. And I've never known somebody who's been baptized and said, yeah, I did it. You know, I... Look what I did. Yeah. You know, I never, ever, I've baptized a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I've never had that experience where somebody felt like they had accomplished something. Yeah. It's and always, it's not, like you said, it's passive. It is done for, yeah. it's something that's done for you, not something that you you make happen yourself, I guess. Right. It's, um, I'm sure somebody's tried before, but yeah. it's not... <laughs> That's not what it is. Yeah. Well, you want to put a stop there and take a break because we're going to eat into our application time. You're saying some things. I'm holding back. I'm like wanting yeah. to do some applications. 
Yeah. Uh, Let's take a break, get us a cup of coffee, and come back in the plot. talking about the Sermon on the Mount and the high standards that Christ has set for his followers. And that can be very intimidating for new Christians or for, for Christians who have been Christians for a long, long time. And they, they start to realize, you know, the Lord really expects a lot out of me. Um, and, you know, I, I'm reading Paul talking about giving up all of this. And we know his other sacrifices are well documented. There's a man that gave up so much to know Christ. And we often think of, of Paul as the perfect Christian. Mm-hmm. So I am so thankful for verse 12 in the text, which after saying what he gave up and what he gained, what it means to gain Christ, which I know we haven't delved into that, and we just may not have enough time to do it, this episode. But after saying all that, he goes, not that I have already obtained it. And that's where I just breathe a sigh of relief because I know that I haven't yet. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're still working on it. Um, Yeah. I I was, uh, I had a Bible study yesterday with somebody and uh, we were talking about discipleship. And, um, you know, to her, a disciple was somebody who did good works. That, that, that was her idea of a disciple. And we were looking at some passages of Scripture in, in Luke on disciples. Uh, I think it was Luke chapter 6. I'm turning over there so I can... And, and one of the things we were reading was uh, in Luke chapter 6, we were reading from uh, uh, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And, you know, she she was a little bit intimidated by that because she just heard the last part. A disciple is like his teacher. Mm-hmm. I'm not like Christ. I'm so far below Christ. Does that mean I'm not a disciple? And uh, But we started talking about what, it, what he fully said there. He said, everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so, there, the life of a disciple is training. And when you're in training, you are not perfect yet. Training suggests that you don't know it all. Yeah. You can't do it all, and you don't have the skills yet. You're working towards that, but you're in a growth process. And then later on in this in this passage, which these are, you know, excerpts from the Sermon on the Mount, he goes into the analogy of the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man built his house on a rock, and the winds blew, and the beat on the house, and it did fall because it was built on a rock. And yeah. those are the people who hear these words and do them. And the person who hears these words and do not does not do them is like a man who built his house on the sand, and the storm blew the house down. And so again, you know, we were looking at that and she she felt she said, "Well, see, 
You either do the words or you don't do them. And so, well, did you see what the guys are doing? They are building a house. And a house doesn't get built overnight. It's yeah. one step at a time. And the important, what he's emphasizing here is the foundation that you're building it on. No, you may not be perfect, but are you building on the words of Christ with your life? Are you growing towards Christ, or are you growing in another direction? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Paul is talking about all this, you know, you're just amazed at how he can count his old past life as rubbish, that he may gain Christ, and be found in him, and know him, and know the power of his resurrection, and, and uh, you know, share in his sufferings. You know, that's a hard one. Mm-hmm. And you think, wow, I'm not like that. And then Paul says, not that I have gotten there yet, mm-hmm. but I'm going there. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's what I want. You know, this this part of Philippians 3 is often overlooked because of the great, which we'll get to in verse 13 and 14. Mm-hmm. But verse 12, you know, is just so encouraging to people who are struggling thinking they've got to be perfect. I mean, that was the flesh. You're going back into the flesh again. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're trying to be perfect and you're building it on works. Yeah. You know, it's not about that. It's about whether you live a life of faith, repentance, prayer, and, mm-hmm. you know, trust. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm just so glad that, that Paul said that. That yeah. he hasn't attained it yet. Yeah, because I think he's, you know, he's talking about the resurrection from the dead in verses 10 and 11. The last thing he says in verse 11, right before this, he says, uh, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it. Paul has not been resurrected from the dead yet. Right, but that's and not he all he's been. talking about, is uh-huh. it? No, no, no. I don't think so either. Or am already says, perfect. Yeah, and this word for perfect it comes from this, or the idea behind that word in Greek is complete or mature is also another translation of it. And guess what word is down in verse 15? Let those of us who are perfect think this way. Now, it's translated uh-huh, uh-huh. mature in ESV. It's the same word. Let those of us, let those of us who are... he said. Now, this is cool because he says... Now, I'm not perfect, but I forgot my past. I'm moving forward. Let those of us who are perfect think this way. And I was I, hoping you would explain that to me, uh, that I, verse. Because what does he say in the rest of it? Then he said, the rest of us. Yeah, he, he, says, says, he says, let those of us who are mature, and if you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Let us hold true to what we've attained. And so it's kind of interesting to see Paul say, I'm not, you know, I have not attained uh, I'm not. My salvation has not been completed yet. You know, I'm I'm not perfect yet, or perfect in the sense of my salvation has not been perfected because I have not I have not experienced the resurrection for the dead like Christ has. And you know, there's always something to grow towards. I to me, what I'm thinking is. No matter how good we might get, no matter how great of a follower of Christ we might be, you know what what you just read in Luke is perfect because he says 
You know, until you have been fully trained, you're gonna. I mean, you're gonna keep being trained, but then when you're fully trained, you're gonna be like your teacher. And when are we gonna be like Christ? What does he say there? Uh, well, what does he say on? Does he say it down in here? No, but if you go to Romans six, what he talks about is sharing in a resurrection like Christ. If we are if we are uh, share with him in a death like his, we'll be raised You're, with him. Let me let me interrupt you there. So I think where a lot of people get confused is they misunderstand how broad resurrection is in mm-hmm. Paul's terms and in New Testament terms. Yeah, they strictly think about getting a new body. Mm-hmm. Hey, a body that won't die. That's all it is. And I get this question all the time. Well, are we going to be sinning in heaven? Yeah. Can we can we go to heaven and then and then it's the Garden of Eden all over again, the fall and all that, and yeah. they they don't they don't understand what the promise is. It's not just that you're getting a body that's not going to die, a super body. Mm-hmm. You know that's that's not what Jesus died for, but along with the body being redeemed, everything else is going to be finished, and we're going to. And, you know, I've been looking at this verse a lot in 1 Thessalonians 3. It's talking about the end of time when the resurrection takes place. He doesn't use the word resurrection, but he talks about the end of time. And he says that God will establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Well, at the second coming, that's when the resurrection happens. Mm -hmm. And he says that's when your hearts are going to be established blameless in holiness. Yeah. Then. Yeah. You're you're you've been made you're you're you've been sanctified now, but it's not complete until then, which tells me that the resurrection is not just about getting a perfect body, it's about getting a perfect soul if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. And that's why Paul is talking about that's why he, you know, said goes from that I may attain the resurrection of the dead into not that I've already obtained it or I'm perfect or mature. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm going to be one day and I'm pressing towards that. Yeah. That's what life is. Life is pressing towards that and forgetting the past. It's not, you know, getting being perfect when you come out of the waters of baptism. Yeah, that, that's Man. just where it begins. Uh, and well, you know, how many of us miss that? How many of us think that you know, I, I don't know how many people come in and say, I sinned after I was baptized. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Jesus yeah. hasn't come back yet. Yeah. I think definitely what's... We are not done growing. or We are not done being trained until that happens, what we're talking about. Yeah. So this is why, you know, we stress so much... Here at Asheville Road, you know, our whole process, seed, plant, fruit, and we talk about growing as a Christian, you know, something's not growing, it's dead, and biology, and that sort of thing. This is, I mean, this is why. Because all of us can grow until the day that we die. You know, until you reach, uh, or until the day of judgment, then there is, you know, you've, until you reach judgment, which is going to be, you know, the time you have on earth is all you can do about it. Until that happens, 
your salvation is not completed in the sense of, and I don't mean to say that the cross does not does not have power to save or anything like that. Right. It's just simply the process. You're remaking your... Yeah, the process that is begun with your, you know, and when you're baptized, yes, you are buried with Christ in a in a spiritual death, and that way you may be raised again, and when you're baptized, there's you become something new, you're a new creation. But I think what Paul is what Paul is talking about here is the resurrection from the dead somewhat because he says not that I've already obtained this. This refers back to the resurrection of the dead. I have not already been raised from the dead. Now, I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make the resurrection of the dead my own because Christ Jesus had made has made me his own. So the whole point that, that Paul, what helps him forget his past and what he's striving toward is that prize, is the goal of the prize of that resurrection from the dead. Yeah. And he's not completed at- yet, but he's going to be, and he's looking forward to it, and he's straining forward towards it. Yeah, and just look at the Christians in Paul's day. Mm-hmm. Where's the perfect one? Apollos is telling people to be baptized without telling them to that Jesus is the Messiah. And yeah. Paul is not giving John Mark a second chance. And Peter's not eating with Gentiles. And Yodian and Syntyche are not getting along with each other. And the church at Corinth is horrible. You know, yeah. they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And, you know, every case you find flawed Christians. Does that mean this whole plan didn't work? No. And, and the way that uh, a lot of theologians discuss what we're talking about is they, they summarize it in the phrase, already, not yet. Our salvation is already, not yet. Eternal life is already, not yet. So, redemption is already, and at the same time, it's not yet. It's You want to call it a paradox, that's fine. Um, but that that's what it says. It's You're, you're already redeemed. And you're not yet redeemed. And we understand what that means. It means, you know, while we're on earth in a corrupt world, surrounded by corruption, before the resurrection, in decaying bodies, dying bodies, we're growing. But we're working on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's the way it's meant to be. That's not an excuse to sin. And Paul has to yeah. say that, you know, all the time. As people start misunderstanding, no, don't don't go back to sin. Um, but anyway, that you know, if we're kind of using all our time for one application, but that's that's yeah. an important, one. and that includes the forgetting what lies behind, uh, behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, doesn't it? Because oh, yeah. that's the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, as you're growing, that's what you're doing. For Paul, it's forgetting that you held the coats of the guys that stoned Stephen. Yeah, you're forgetting all the moms and dads that you put in prison and separated from their children. And man, that that had to be a daily struggle for him. Mm-hmm. And um, you're straining forward to to a grand future ahead of you. Yeah, yeah, you're straining towards the resurrection. How you're gonna get the resurrection? You've got to be righteous. You've got to be righteous. Um, and, you know, that's something he says, let those of us that are mature think this way. Let those of us who are, you know, quote, it's the same word, perfect, complete, think this way. Part of being complete is realizing you're incomplete. I think that's kind of, 
you know, I don't know if this is necessarily a play on words, but there is a little bit of, I'm not already perfect. Let those of us who are perfect, you know, mm-hmm. part of being, part of, you know, being wise is realizing how unwise you are. Part of being a smart, wise person in this world is realizing that you don't know everything. Yeah. So that could be another application there. Yeah. So that's kind of paradoxical in and of itself. Um, but there's so many things. Philippians and all of Paul, well, all of the Bible, period. There's so many things to draw from that we can apply to in different ways in our lives. And um, this chapter, this section of this chapter in Philippians is certainly no exception. Um, so we finish up with verse 16. And when we come back to our next episode, we'll wrap up chapter 3. And we'll get into, after the first verse of chapter 4, we'll talk about standing firm in the Lord. Um, a lot. There's only a few verses there. Let's see. There's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. There's only 6 verses in the next section. Hmm. But there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that one. Much like I was looking forward to this one. Uh, some good stuff. Um you can let us know what you think about these episodes. I'm, we're running out of time, I see here, so we're going to wrap it up. Uh, you can let us know what you think about these episodes on our website at the66.net. 66 is a number. You can find us on Twitter. We are at the66podcast. The 66 is a number. Um, if you want to complain about something, you can email us at dkaiser at arcoc.com. Uh, We really appreciate everybody that's listening, and um, we hope that this is helping helping you grow um, in your study of the scriptures. That's what we are trying to do. Uh, So, you know, it's our hope and our prayer that we are helping spread the word of God and give a little bit of insight into uh, what the scriptures have to say.